two years ago, Ramona Matthews Polk had the worst day of her life. She remembers every detail. It was Tuesday. Her husband, Randy, was at their home for lunch, and he was taking his usual 15-minute power nap. Um, And during that 15-minute power hour, he opened our bedroom door. I was sitting in the living room, and he said, I'm having a heart attack. Get me to the hospital. Everything went by quickly from there, and it had to. And I said, no, I'm calling 911. He said, I'll be dead. Um, But by the grace of God, having at that time, we did not have a full hospital, but we did have a ER with a couple of hospital rooms. Ramona and Randy live in Bowie, a small town in North Texas that's about an hour outside of Fort Worth. At the time of Randy's heart attack, the main service the town's hospital offered was its emergency room. Randy is a firefighter with some paramedic experience. Randy knew it takes time for paramedics to gather their gear and equipment on top of driving. So we jumped in the car, flew to the hospital. I dropped him off at the door. He was able to get in. Um, At that point, he was about, his color was gray, turning blue. He was projectile vomiting. I, I knew it was a heart attack, but I didn't know how bad it was. Then the doctor let her know exactly how bad it was. And he said, your husband is actively having the Widowmaker heart attack. He's not going to live. And his blood pressure was 258 over 197. So his heart was about to explode. She says doctors at the emergency room were able to get his blood pressure lowered just enough so he could be flown to a nearby hospital almost 30 miles away. Once at that hospital, the cardiac surgeon gave Ramona a grim update. And he said that 1% live through the Widowmaker heart attack. And he said, and I, he said, and we're going to do the surgery in one hour. You have one hour to get your affairs in order. Ramona got to see Randy before he went into surgery. We went in and we didn't discuss one thing about it. We didn't talk about anything because how do you look someone in the face and tell them that your doctor just said you have one hour to live? Randy survived that night, but prefers not to talk about it. Ramona still gets emotional just thinking about it. And what might happen in case of another emergency? Had we not had that emergency room, my husband, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, would have died that evening. It is so scary now that we do not have a hospital, an ER, or anything. Bowie Memorial Hospital was the only hospital in a 25-mile radius for the residents. But former hospital and city leaders say that after years of financial trouble, the hospital closed in 2020. Now, Bowie and surrounding communities and families like Ramona's are without immediate access to health care, a trend seen in many rural Texas communities. There are more than 600 hospitals in the state, but only about 160 are in rural areas, according to data from the Texas Hospital Association. Welcome to a special episode of Petri Dish. I'm your host, Bonnie Petrie. For the next hour, we will share the work of a large, multi-team project. The Texas Newsroom, a collaboration among Texas public radio stations and NPR, teamed up with Texas Tech Public Media, the PBS series Frontline, and American Public Media Research Lab for a year-long investigation that looked into rural hospitals' closures in Texas. They found in the last decade, 135 rural hospitals have closed across the U.S. since 2005, 
24 of these hospitals have closed in Texas, the most of any state in the U.S. Over the past year, reporter Jamie Lozano traveled throughout Texas to take a close look at what is causing these hospitals to close and the ripple effects it has on those small communities. She poured through the documents, spoke with healthcare professionals and residents, and she found some trends about what's happening here in rural Texas. Jamie takes it from here. The drive from Lubbock has been a pretty straight shot, uh, but it's also just been a really long stretch of road with... Bowie lies in North Texas, hidden away behind miles and miles of farmland and winding roads that can go on for hours. These sites are more common than not. Texas is a big state with 254 counties, and 70% of those are considered rural. Um, It does eventually lead to the Welcome to Bowie sign and the world's uh, largest Bowie knife in front of it. Bowie is midway between Fort Worth and Wichita Falls. The oil and gas-driven community is small enough that you can drive on East Y Street, the main road, and see just about the whole town. You wouldn't be able to see the former hospital, though. Um, So I'm outside Bowie Memorial Hospital, uh, where it doesn't seem to have really been landscaped in quite a while. Um, The grass is overgrown. The... uh, the emergency services sign. Let me see if I can... Bowie Memorial Hospital is tucked away into a quiet neighborhood. The hospital closed in early 2020, but the glass doors at the front still have the notice to the public taped up, informing them of the closure. This wasn't the first time that this has happened either. They've got the front locked up. I don't know why. I don't even have the lights on. They must be getting ready to close. Are y'all locked up for the day, man? During my trip to Bowie, I met with Ramona at her salon, Main Attractions. She enters her salon and greets her three daughters. Ramona has owned this place for 38 years. I'm 56 and I moved here when I was 20, so I've lived here 36 years. And, um... I I married a guy from here, so we moved here. And I've watched us grow, and I've watched us die. Bowie is a tight-knit community, full of families who have been here for generations, many of whom have experienced what it's like to not have healthcare access. Ramona remembers when it was a dire situation for her and her husband. A report from a local news station stated that the hospital only had the emergency room open. There are so many things that cannot be done by a paramedic or an ambulance that can be done in a hospital. There's no way that an ambulance could have saved my husband. They can't haul enough medicine on an ambulance. Ramona's husband nearly died from his heart attack. The nearest hospital was 20 minutes away, and without the open ER, his situation could have looked a lot different. So that 20 minutes is life or death. And that's what I've told everybody. People think 20 minutes is not far, but it's never going to be 20 minutes. The ambulance has to leave the fire department and go to where you're at. They have to try to stabilize you. They have to figure out... Bowie's hospital has been closed for nearly two years, leaving more than 5,000 residents without immediate access to a hospital. The main problem is one I've seen consistently in every town I've studied. It comes down to money and debt. Rural hospitals like the one in Bowie struggle with getting payments from patients. 
People have no idea how much money that the hospital did not collect because people, two things, people, well, people had the resources to pay their bills and didn't. People didn't have the ability to pay their bills and we, that was, that was given. That was our responsibility to take care of those people and the hospital did. Lynn Heller was the hospital administrator at Bowie Memorial Hospital for nearly 20 years. He left briefly and later returned to try and help pull the hospital out of a dire financial situation. Uh, the hospital was struggling because uh, people weren't paying their bills and the government uh, weren't paying what they should be paying to the hospitals and to doctors. Lynn is talking about how hospitals get reimbursed by the federal government through the Medicaid program, which is supposed to cover low-income people who can't afford services on their own. Those reimbursements have gotten lower due to federal budget cuts and Texas legislators not expanding Medicaid. Lynn says that in the time he was not working with Bowie Memorial Hospital, the hospital's debt had grown significantly. It was obvious that the hospital was going to have to have tax money to survive. So in an effort to pay off that debt and stay open, Lynn Heller and the Bowie Hospital Board came up with a solution by converting the area into something called a tax district. Which takes us back to World War I. As the United States entered World War I, and while thousands of refugees fled the Mexican Revolution, making their way into the U.S., the town of San Antonio established a charity hospital. But like so many other hospitals, funding became a problem. In 1954, a law passed for areas around the state to use property taxes to fund hospitals, and this was how hospital tax districts were started in Texas. According to our partners at the APM Research Lab, the Texas Comptroller lists 140 hospital districts in the state. APM also found that just over half of all the states use these special tax districts, but Texas has the most in the country. What that says to you is, is that we don't have enough of that commercial base to make up that cost difference, and so that's why we need local tax support. That's Kevin Reed with the Texas Organization of Rural and Community Hospitals, or TORCH. It's an advocacy group in Texas. The, the hospital business is a tough business. Even in a town like Bowie, it's a low volume. It's a 24-7 operation, so the, the lights are on, the air conditioner's on, the staff are there, but you're still going to have relatively low volume in a small town. When Reed says low volume, he means there aren't enough patients. With a small patient volume, a hospital can lose a big source of revenue, and the patients they do have don't bring in much money. What makes money in healthcare is basically hearts, knees, and hips, and general surgery. That's the specialty stuff. That's, that's where the money is. There, there, is, there is little or no money, most of them no money, in, uh, in, in grandma who comes to the nursing home and spends a few days in the hospital. That's general medicine. For towns like Bowie, becoming a hospital district is one of the best options to make up the difference in revenue. In order to become a hospital tax district, however, residents would need to vote on it. So Bowie took it to a public vote. So here we go again. Someone in Monte County wants your hard-earned money. And they've tried this before, but they failed. Back in 2015, Bowie was set to hold a public vote on becoming a hospital district. 
For a home worth $100,000, the homeowner would pay $170 a year to support the hospital. As the public prepared to vote, a group opposing the tax increase released this video on social media to publicize their arguments against the tax vote. Vote no, and together, we'll reconstruct Bowie to serve us. In this, a photo of Lynn Heller pops up, the former hospital administrator at Bowie. Then I resigned to head the campaign for the hospital district. And I had, I had a lot of support from different people. Lynn says he resigned because he wanted to make sure the public understood that this was a way to save the hospital. He wanted to relate to them, so he didn't want to be seen as a voice for the hospital. Uh, it's just a sad day. Sad day uh, that, that the people didn't understand what, what an asset that they had there. The residents of Bowie went to the polls, and the decision was made. The tax proposal failed by 184 votes out of the 3,280 votes cast. I, I didn't see that coming. I, I thought we had the support of a lot of people, but it, it, just, it just, wasn't, just wasn't enough. Bowie Memorial Hospital closed within three weeks of the vote. It was one of the saddest days of my life when the hospital closed. And we told them, since the hospital will close, people started calling the city office saying, we didn't really believe it was going to close. We will change our vote. But there are a lot of uneducated people who have never needed a hospital who voted against it because, oh, I don't want my taxes to go up. So you would rather have someone in your family die by not having a hospital or an ER to save a couple hundred dollars a year? We heard from Ramona and Bowie earlier and how she nearly lost her husband to a heart attack. Thinking of her husband and the people she cared for in her hometown, she voted for establishing the hospital district. I am 100% for higher taxes or hospital tax, whatever we had to do to get it back. But there's a lot of people who don't feel that way, obviously because it didn't pass. As a result of the vote, the hospital closed in 2015, then reopened briefly by new owners in 2017 before closing again in 2020. Now, Bowie residents rely on two neighboring cities, both of which are 25 minutes away. And as Ramona mentioned before, every minute in an emergency counts. My husband, they told me another minute would not have lived, and I literally lived two minutes from the hospital. So I, I can't imagine anyone who has a loved one that they care anything about would not be willing to pay that tax to have something here to save lives. I, I will never understand that. Her husband's doctor told her that Randy will most likely have another heart attack within the next 10 years. My husband and I have decided that if we don't open a hospital back up or an ER, we won't retire here. Who wants to retire in a town where there's no medical facility? But the thought of uprooting our family and moving, I mean, it's not something I ever saw us doing. I thought we would be here till we died. So Bowie no longer has a hospital. Their only lifeline left is an ambulance. So what happens when a town is about to lose even that? After the break, Jamie takes us to a community meeting on a hot Tuesday evening where residents of a small rural town fight to keep their EMS station open. So we have to fix this. So this has to be fixed. If Rawls folds... It folds the whole system. That's coming up next on Petri Dish. Stay with us. 
I'm Chris Boyd, host of Think. Each day we strive to expand your worldview by talking about discoveries in science and health, about new ways of considering the past and present, and about the issues that divide us and occasionally bring us together. Plus, we always save space to hear the deeply personal stories that remind us that each of our experiences is unique. I hope you'll join us next time as we take a moment to think. Welcome back to Petri Dish. Since 2005, 24 rural hospitals have shuttered in Texas. That's more than any state in the entire country. Our team at the Texas Newsroom partnered with PBS Frontline and American Public Media Research Lab to find out what's going on. Before the break, Jamie Lozano, a reporter with Texas Tech Public Media, took us to Bowie, where the small town recently lost its hospital. At least they've got their ambulance for emergencies. Some places, like Rawls, might lose even that. Jamie's headed there now. Six o'clock. We're now in Rawls, almost four hours west of Bowie, and one of the many small towns in West Texas. Mayor Don Hamilton hosts a city hall meeting on a hot Tuesday evening this past July. Nearly two dozen people are here. They all know each other. Some are young, some are older. They're all here for the same reason. Their emergency medical services, or EMS, which includes their ambulance, paramedics, and medical equipment, are all in jeopardy. Here's Mayor Hamilton again. The city council has no obligation to respond or questions from the public. Four days before this meeting, Mayor Hamilton abruptly closed the station temporarily. Now, days later, he's facing the public. Uh, the week of January the 25th. The EMS station is right outside these doors. It's the only medical access in town. They don't have a hospital or even a small clinic, so their EMS is how they get medical care. Uh, I wanted to know, did was a committee formed to look into this situation? You can't answer. You can't answer. See, okay. okay, I thought this would be an answer to what the committee had found. As the city council remains quiet, the residents ask for answers. Some of them express the impacts of such a sudden decision. One resident mentions how the decision already affects her family. The day after we suspended our ambulance, my mother fell. And, you know, it just broke my heart. The population in the town is less than 2,000. They all depend on their single ambulance since they don't have a hospital for themselves. And which was about 2007, 2008. And my mother uh, was had, had, we found out was blood clot and called it Ross Ambulance. They got there in time, were able to. Her blood oxygen level was like at 45 when they got there. They were able to get her to the hospital and save her life. I saved her life. Accessing health care is an issue seen around the state, and it's amplified by not having EMS stations. Data from APM Research Lab shows that among the 84 Texas counties that don't have a hospital, 12 of those also don't have an EMS station. All right. Uh, I just passed a sign saying I'm about to get into Rawls. 
Um, Rawls is about 30 minutes east of Lubbock and at this time of the year it is surrounded by rows and rows of West Texas grown cotton and wheat. When I visited Rawls back in June, my destination was the EMS station. This truck is about three years old, so we're still paying it off. <laughs> oh, wow. Like that, that monitor is the new one that we just had a grant for this year um, that we were forced to buy in order to stay in state compliance. Oh. Sarah Jamerson was the director of the EMS station when we first met in April. Her family roots run deep in Rawls. Her grandmother helped the city start the EMS station in 1973. So we had to come up with a way to buy a $33,000 piece of equipment. She gave me a tour of the town's only ambulance and guided me through the truck in June. This service is part of my family's legacy. But this is the service that's responsible for taking care of my family. You know, like if something were to happen to my daughter or my grandmother or my aunt and uncle or something, like... If no one's there to answer the call, like, they're the ones that are going to be left in the lurch. Aside from being the director, she was also working full-time for another EMS station in Lubbock, 40 minutes away, as well as holding certification classes to train new paramedics and raising a young daughter with her wife. It was an emotionally daunting task for her to take on. There's not enough help here. It takes up too much of my time. It's taking too much time away from my family. Um, But at the same time, the other half of my voice is like, and if I don't do it, who's going to do it? The station has trouble with staffing. Sarah says they are not able to match the higher pay as nearby towns have. And after taxes are taken out, some employees aren't taken as much home as they need. Two months after I met Sarah, she resigned. She says she was feeling burned out from all of her extra work and she wanted time to be with her family. When she resigned, according to Sarah, Five other workers at the station quit. Three weeks later, the station was temporarily closed by the mayor, who said it was because of the lack of staff and not having enough money in the city's budget to keep the station running. At the city hall meeting called by the mayor, Sarah addresses the staffing issue directly with the city council. Whenever the last four people who quit have decided pay, 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 taxes, what that means is that EMS is not a hobby anymore, and the people that do it are professionals, and they expect and need to be compensated as professionals because this is how they support their families. And $10 an hour for someone who spent three years in school and however many years of experience to gain the expertise and knowledge that the last 50 years of innovation and progress has provided is not enough for somebody to drive over here and do that. The problem comes down to money. How much the Rawls EMS brings in depends on residents and insurance payments, and Sarah says they don't receive enough. But we're going to have to take some money from some of the other entities. The city council closes the doors to the public and goes into executive session for the next two hours. Residents wait outside in the summer heat for the city council's decision on if the EMS will reopen. Well, welcome everybody back. The residents are summoned back in by the city council. We have Bobby Bean now aboard with us. And they adjourn within five minutes. The residents seem confused. It is clear there is a new director, but it is not clear if the EMS will reopen. Sarah wants answers. So are the doors back open? Yeah. One council member shrugs, but Kim Perez, the city administrator, responds. That's 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 so we can get people on the schedule. Right. Yeah, he said we were adjourned. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. 
she means the EMS needs staff before it can reopen. Most of the residents stay seated, waiting for a clear answer and the root of the problem to be resolved. We have to fix this. This has to be fixed. Chris Pickering, another former EMS director for Rawls, explains why it's important that they make it work. The patient load of Rawls would fall on the shoulders of the neighboring town of Crosbyton. There is quickly approaching a day where y'all could call 911 and nobody answers. And I cannot hammer that home enough. Crosbyton's EMS only has one working ambulance and one for backup, so their top priority is their residents. The additional patient volume coming from Rawls would overload their services, as Crosbyton EMS would then be covering the entire county of nearly 6,000 residents. If Rawls folds, it folds the whole system. The ripple effect of Rawls losing its EMS could become a heavy burden for Crosbyton. Heading into Crosbyton from Rawls isn't very far. Uh, it's practically down the road, uh, but the heavy, heavy traffic on the way has not been fun to go through. Crosbyton is about 10 miles away from Rawls and has the nearest hospital, one that takes care of medical needs for surrounding counties. And uh, I gotta be honest with you, I do not know what the long-term uh, forecast would be for a Crosbyton. They have a real, real challenge ahead of them. Uh, it's just a real struggle to provide care in those communities. Steve Beck is a spokesman for Crosbyton Clinic Hospital. He says they've reached a challenging time. We have some counties that lack physician coverage uh, altogether. Uh, and so it's a real challenge. Uh, physician coverage is a challenge. Staffing is a challenge. Uh, the volumes are a challenge. It's hard. It's hard to run a rural community. It's hard Beck to run a Beck says that staffing is always hard and the pandemic hasn't helped. You know, it's just one of those other cycles that's caught up with us. It's caught up with us in the pandemic. It has been a tremendous impact on that. And, you know, everyone's been operating at capacity and there's burnout. There's people leaving the profession. Staffing issues have been growing in recent years, as data from the American Public Media Research Lab show. As of July this year, 228 of Texas's 254 counties were reporting shortages of primary care providers. That was up by 99 counties from just two years before. Uh, but staffing in all, in all forms of health care, especially for our rural communities, is a real challenge. Uh, I think in the next two or three years, uh, I, I think we run a real risk. Uh, I think we're going to see a really danger uh, again of, of some of our rural hospitals surviving. Remember the town of Rawls and how they were about to lose their EMS station? This is why it's so important for that station to stay open. Steve says that Rawls and Crosbyton have a mutual aid agreement and they answer calls for each other if it's needed. Crosbyton EMS also serves as a transport service to Lubbock. But when you only have one crew, you know, that's on duty and, and you know, only able to service, uh, basically put one ambulance in service at a time, you know, you put a strain on a community. Uh, if an ambulance is off doing a transfer um, and a 911 call comes in, you know, if, if there's no service available, there's no service available. Since 2019, some services have been reduced at Crosbyton Clinic Hospital, and the amount of open hospital beds they have has also gone down from 25 to 2. A decrease in hospital beds is a trend all over Texas. Our reporting shows that since 2005, Texas has lost 880 hospital beds. That's the most in the country. Crosbyton struggles with low patient volume. So Beck says that the changes that happened were made out of survival. The changes that were made 
uh, were made out of necessity uh, to keep the doors open and to keep services flowing. We weren't able to maintain all those services. Uh, we had to make some decisions on what services were most important, um, what we, we felt like in the community at the time. Even though healthcare in rural Texas continues to get stripped down, it's still a service that Texans are fighting to keep. The chair lays out Senate Bill 170 and recognizes. In March of 2019, State Senator Charles Perry spoke to the Senate Committee on Health and Human Services about the issue of rural health care. Members, I've got 39 rural health care hospitals in my district. I'm the largest of the 361, I have 39. It's safe to say that 10 of those will no longer be open by the time we come, come back next session, possibly more. Uh, Senator Perry, a Republican from Lubbock, spoke in favor of Senate Bill 170, a bill that would lead to a new reimbursement framework for rural hospitals participating in Medicaid programs. The state senator was right. Several sources we've spoken with on the issue have pointed to the low reimbursement rates as part of their problems, including Don Macbeth. Before his recent retirement, he was the director of government relations at the Texas Organization of Rural and Community Hospitals, or TORCH. My name is Don McBeth. I'm with the Texas Organization of Rural and Community Hospitals, and we represent the remaining 161 rural hospitals in the state of Texas. McBeth spoke at that same Texas State Senate hearing, but had to get something out of the way first. And Senator Perry, rarely would I correct a state senator in a public forum. You said you have 39 rural hospitals. Uh, you forgot one of them closed in July, so you have 38. Crosbyton Hospital is one of those 38. He's been keeping an eye on Crosbyton's situation. As we know, the hospital reduced its services and patients are often transported to Lubbock. What they have done is they have made some really tough decisions that were probably not overly popular in the community. Um, that They really are doing much less than they used to, but, but it's survival for them. Part of the problem in Crosbyton, like most rural towns, is the state's high uninsured rate. The APM Research Lab's look at the U.S. Census Bureau data shows that Texas has an uninsured rate of 21%, the highest in the country. That means one out of every five Texans are uninsured. Which is pretty mind-boggling. For all of those uninsured people, the bridge to affording health care is through Medicaid, which is supposed to be covering the patient's fees. But because Texas hasn't expanded Medicaid coverage, data from TORCH shows that Texas rural hospitals lose about $110 million a year. Macbeth says that under those conditions, any other business would be struggling too. If you had a hardware store and the federal government required that hardware store to sell goods, nuts, bolts, and tools to everybody that came in the door, whether they pay or not, and that one out of four people coming in the door is going to take whatever, but they're not going to pay you, you can't stay in business very long. That's the environment rural hospitals are operating in. He says it's also a big challenge to reopen a hospital once it's closed. But even with the odds stacked against them, our research did take us to one area that was willing to try. Coming up after the break, we visit Van Zandt County, there, one man is on a mission to bring health care back to this rural East Texas community. I think God chose me to start turning around hospitals, and that's what I started doing.
It's happening at the border, in the Texas capital city, in the fields of the Permian Basin, in the research labs, in the military bases, along the Gulf Coast, and countless points in between. You can get up to speed on all the day's news directly affecting Texans on the next edition of the Texas Standard. Hope you can join us. You're listening to Petri Dish. Before the break, our reporter, Jamie Lozano, walked us through the brittle healthcare network of Crosby County. One community is fighting for its last lifeline, the EMS station, while their neighboring town has watched their hospitals stripped of its services. Now, we travel to East Texas, to an area that's already lost its one hospital, but it's working to resuscitate it. Okay, I'm driving to uh, Van Zant County Hospital right now. On the other side of Texas, less than two hours from the Louisiana border, is the small town of Grand Saline, made famous for the Morton Salt Mine marked by a palace made completely of salt. It's nestled in Van Zant County. Okay, right now, I don't know what town I'm actually... Oh, I'm in, I must be in Grand Saline. One of our reporters, Casey Ellingson, made the seven-hour drive from Lubbock to Grand Saline. Probably in the downtown area. It's pretty cute with a lot of little mom-and-pop shops and, like, a Dollar General store. There is a water tower that says Grand Saline, so yes, that's where I am, Grand Saline. A few weeks prior, Casey stumbled upon a Facebook post advertising that the recently closed hospital of Van Zant County was hiring. Van Zant County Hospital closed in 2019, leaving about 60,000 residents in the surrounding areas without a nearby hospital. But now I'm like in the middle of a neighborhood and I see the hospital sign. Oh, and there's this really nice, gigantic green sign for the Van Zant Regional Hospital. Main entrance, emergent. It's like the biggest sign in the world. It's like 20 feet. And I'm turning in right now. It's this cute little, it's a, it's a, Pretty small hospital is pretty cute, though. And it. Uh, Casey met up with Randy Lindauer outside the Van Zandt Hospital. I met up with Lindauer back in February. He's the new CEO with decades of experience helping struggling rural hospitals become sustainable businesses, not just in Texas, but around the country. This is his latest focus. All right, this is cute. Well, it wasn't this way. <laughs> I, it, 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 I mean, it looked like something in the movies before I got here. It really did. It was horrific. The outside of the hospital is well-groomed with neatly trimmed bushes and new signs. All of Lindauer's hard work. I think God chose me to start turning around hospitals, and that's what I started doing. And it's been a blessing. Uh, and coming here has been a blessing. It's probably one of my most rewarding small rural hospitals that I've been associated with. It's hard enough to run a rural hospital, especially in a state that's seen the most rural hospital closures in the country. But it's even harder to reopen one. We wanted to see how a hospital could reopen its doors in a remote town. So Casey followed that journey. When I initially drove up to the Van Zandt Hospital, I thought it was just another small rural hospital. But it's actually much bigger than that. The hospital is surrounded by little buildings, and Lindauer has a vision for each. We're going to call this our medical plaza once we get done with all the buildings and clinics that we want on the site. Uh, that 
area down there. We're getting ready to renovate it. We renovated those. Uh, that will be our on-call building for our physicians and clinical staff, like uh, the physicians for the ER, but also for uh, radiology, for ultrasound, x-ray, for lab. and. It almost uh, looks like a big uh, strip mall with connecting offices. Each one is a different clinic. Some are closed, some are already open. This is all part of a large medical plaza. And Randy's focus is reopening the main hospital. I mean, we've gutted it inside already. It's either, we're either going to make it a laboratory or I'm thinking probably more of a physical therapy on the right side and then a uh, rehab area on the left for the, uh, you know, the mentally challenged people. So, uh, okay. yeah, I think that we need that in the area for uh, rehabilitation uh, on different levels. Lindauer has big dreams for this place, and he's been working hard to get the hospital in decent shape. Not only is he handling the paperwork to get the proper licensing for the facility, but he's also helping with the renovations. The work is consuming. Even when he sleeps, he can't get away from it because right now, he lives here. Uh, let's see. This is a newer, this is the original editions. So this one was built in 1944. Oh, okay. So it's kept it. In great shape. Um, At the end of the hospital hallway, there's a row of patient rooms. Randy opens the first door. My sleeping room, because I'm here 24-7, because uh, you never know when a pipe's going to break, and when you put in 18 hours a day, you just need someplace to lay your head. Can I take a picture so, of that? Inside, yeah. it looks like a hospital room and a bedroom colliding. There's a large oak dresser with a reading lamp, and next to it, a hospital bed with white pillows and sheets pulled tight. This is where Lindauer's been sleeping every night for the past three months. A Bible and a screwdriver rest on the windowsill beside his bed. Two things Lindauer uses the most. It's, you know, it's, it's, when you're so tired, it don't matter where you lay your head down. I mean, we all work together as a team. I've got a Lindauer's normally up at four in the morning, a habit he says he formed as a kid growing up in Indiana with a paper route. He left his wife and daughters back in Indiana to help with the hospital. He says he plans to stay in Grand Saline until the hospital is sustainable, which he estimates will take six to 10 years. Everyone we've talked to throughout this project agrees that reopening a rural hospital is not an easy task. And this particular hospital has a history of repeatedly closing. The latest closure was in August of 2019. Come in. How are y'all? Hey, good, how are you? Hey. Good, how are you? Good, you? Doing good. Good. Lindauer leads me to the office of their human resources director, Rhonda Moore. You saw my office. Isn't it cute? <laughs> I really like all the sunflowers. Moore had worked for the hospital for five years before it closed abruptly in 2019. She says the situation was heartbreaking. A little over a year later, when she was approached to come back and help reopen the hospital under a new owner, she says she was hesitant. But then she met Randy Lindauer. I never had faith in the other ones. And with Randy, and I, I was so impressed. I went home that day and I called my mom. I said, I like this guy. I trust this guy. She says she could tell immediately that Lindauer knew what needed to be done to manage the place from top to bottom. I trust him with everything he says. He's the most genuine, honest person and knows his stuff. He's been doing it for years. Mm -hmm. So I feel very confident this time that we are going to do well. Lindauer was brought on by the team at Innate Medical Solutions. They're the owners of the hospital. During her visit to Van Zandt, Casey got to visit with the head of the company. 
Gary Martin is the founder of Innate Medical Solutions. They offer an array of services, from primary care to pain management. Martin is also a pastor, a fact several people, including Lindauer, point to as a big reason he's uniquely qualified for the task of running a rural hospital. Rural healthcare isn't exactly in their wheelhouse, yet. But Martin is passionate about bringing healthcare to rural areas like Van Zandt. These people are in need right now. Yeah. And you can tell I grew up in a town like this. Yeah, so and so did you. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're from these towns. I was born in a hospital like this in West Texas. So, mm-hmm. um, And then my mother worked in a hospital like this. My aunts worked in hospitals like this all their lives. And these are getting, these are becoming extinct. While Martin has so, personal experience yeah. with rural health care, professionally, this is the first time he's actually tried to run a rural hospital. But Martin says it's more than a hospital they're working to open out here in Van Zandt County. We're, we're not just trying to run a practice. We're trying to, we're trying to create a vision here that's a, a, something different than just trying to come in, make some money, and, and, you know, something like that. We're actually trying to serve the community. I think that was probably, and I don't know, I think that was probably part of what was missing in the past. Since 2009, the hospital in Grand Saline has undergone four name changes, two closures, and at least four changes in management. I say at least because two owners backed out of the deal within months and never actually got the hospital up and running. So a lot of people would come into these hospitals and use it like a a way to make money real quick and then and then close you know, close it down and collect the whatever they could off the receivables, I think. That's unfortunate. Yeah. The first one got got fraud here. He was doing a lot of fraud. The first one he's referring to was Dr. Tariq Mahmood. He ran several rural hospitals, including the one in Grand Saline. He was caught lying on patient charts to get reimbursements from the government for services they never provided. He's now in prison, convicted of healthcare fraud. The hospital shuttered very suddenly after that in 2013 and remained closed for around two years. Then, another group reopened the hospital in 2015 as part of a network of rural hospitals. They had a big one in a big hospital in Grand Prairie, and then they bought some these surrounding ones mm-hmm. to kind of feed that main one, I think. And that, that didn't work. They were running it out, out of network and sending out a lot of bills to the patients. And Out of network means they didn't take private insurance, so patients were getting really high bills that they often couldn't afford. They eventually sold the hospital to the owner who closed the hospital in 2019. Now, it's under Gary Martin's control. Even with the hospital's troubled history, when it comes to the future, he feels... Cautiously optimistic. I think we're going to do fine. I think, you know, anything we've set our mind to will work. So I think we'll, we're, we're going to serve this community, and I think we're going to open up some more of these. So, I, I mean, I, we have the vision to do that, So, and we have the people that, that can do it. So I'm very, I'm very optimistic. At this point in the conversation... Lindauer has entered the room and joins the conversation. Randy, Randy's doing most of the work like that. We all do it as a team. Don't let him fool you. We <laughs> all do it as a team. It's a team effort because we would not be, you don't see a hospital reopening in almost three months. I mean, you just don't see it. I've, I've been through it five times and it just doesn't happen that quick. It's a big undertaking, but everyone agrees if anyone can pull it off, it's Lindauer. And where we put... Uh, the vinyl 
it had some whiteboards there that were rotten and chipped and we ripped all the awnings off, so they're supposed to be here this week, all the new awnings and stuff. Okay. Back outside the Van Zandt Regional Hospital, Randy Lindauer, the hospital's CEO, points out where he plans to put the new awning and illuminated emergency sign, all bought on discounts he sniffed out. With all this progress, the hospital's opening seems to draw closer and closer. A lot happening. I was telling Gary last night, I said it's going to be 20-hour days for the next two weeks. You know what's going on and what's happening, so... Uh, just bear with us all. Lindauer tells me he'll reach out for the ribbon-cutting ceremony he's hoping to have in a few weeks. We stay in touch. He updates me on their progress, like getting the various licenses to open. But no ribbon-cutting. Eight months passed from my first visit. Now, I'm starting to wonder what's happening in Grand Saline. Okay, so I got a message on my Facebook, and I'm going to go ahead and pull that up. So I'm logging on to... My Facebook right now. I'm gonna pull this person's message up. Okay, kind of out of the blue, I got this message and they wrote, Hi Casey, just wanted to let you know that the hospital is not opening in Grand Saline. They are turning it into a rehabilitation hospital. The person asked to remain anonymous. They were worried about potential backlash for speaking out about the situation. They also tell me that three of the workers, including Lindauer, are no longer working there. I wanted to get some answers, so I called Lindauer. No one would respond to my messages. Over the course of this project, the reopening of Van Zandt's hospital became a significant area of focus for us. If everything went according to plan, it seemed like they had cracked the code for not only reopening, but running a sustainable rural hospital, something that had failed in places like Bowie and other areas we looked at. We needed to figure out what happened. The last update I had received from Lindauer came two weeks before the Facebook message. He told me that they'd definitely be opening the hospital in a few days. So what changed? I reached out to Gary Martin, the owner of the hospital, and we chatted over the phone. Yeah, and uh, we, we, we had a series of things that kind of hurt us, to tell you the truth. Like, uh, we had a few miscalculations, and it's not Randy's fault. Two big miscalculations, he says, were time and cost a combination of high overhead costs that he says he took on too quickly, and the rigorous state health codes they had difficulty meeting became overwhelming. But one of the main culprits was the building itself. As Lindauer mentioned during the tour of the hospital, the building was old. Parts had been built in the 40s. I would say if we're going to blame it on something, that's what I would blame it on, is, is you got an air handler from 1942, um, you know, you've got the wall units like you have in the Motel 6 from 1960s. Um, you know, these, they work, but they're, they're out of date. Out of date in a healthcare facility often means out of compliance. Martin says, looking back, he thinks it may have been cheaper to just tear the building down and start over again. The issue of an old building isn't unique to Van Zandt. According to experts in the field, it's a common problem they've encountered with rural hospitals. I would say it's going to cost 10 times more, take you 10 times longer, uh, and it's going to be 10 times more difficult than you probably thought. 
that's that that was I mean that's all on me. I didn't I didn't research it enough. But there's a silver lining to the Van Zandt story. Gary Martin and his team at Innate Medical Solutions are still moving forward with bringing healthcare back to Grand Saline. They're going to offer acute hospital beds. Only now, the facility will function more like an urgent care. Martin says they plan to eventually open a rehab wing for physical and occupational therapy. The main difference between this and their initial vision is that the hospital won't have a 24-hour emergency room. The closest emergency room is in Canton, a little less than 20 minutes away. I ask Martin once again how he feels about the future. <laughs> exactly the same, cautiously optimistic. It won't, it's not going to make a bunch of money. It's not, you don't get into this thing for, to get rich with a rural hospital. You, 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 you're going to have to do it to serve. I mean, so, um, that's, I can, I can make that work. I can make that work if it even just breaks even. I'll be a happy man. <clears throat> Appropriates approximately $12.8 billion in federal coronavirus state fiscal recovery funds and $500.5 billion. In During the state's third special session earlier in October, the Texas legislature passed a bill that could serve as a lifeline to rural hospitals around the state, which awards about $16.3 billion worth of COVID-19 relief funds to various initiatives in Texas. Rural hospitals were given $75 million as part of the bill. Throughout our reporting, it's become clear that the main problem with all of these closures comes down to a lack of resources. It's an intricate balancing act to run a rural hospital, operating on a tight budget with high costs and low reimbursements, all with the mission to be a life-saving service to the community where they operate. What's even clearer is that rural hospitals in Texas need a lifeline of their own. That was reporter Jamie Lozano and Casey Ellingson with Texas Tech Public Media. This story is part of a collaboration with Frontline, the PBS series, through its local journalism initiative, which is funded by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Special thanks to the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration of Texas public radio stations and NPR, for bringing us this project. Thanks also to American Public Media Research Lab for their reporting assistance. Our executive producer is Texas Newsroom Senior Editor Fernanda Camarena. Texas Public Radio's News Director is Dan Katz. Our sound engineer is Jacob Rosati. Thanks to special contributor Karen Carion with KERA, Jonathan Seaborn, and former Texas Newsroom Managing Editor Mark Mehmet. I'm your host, Bonnie Petrie. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.